Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ikigai Project. Today, we're exploring one transition that is universal to all of us, the transition of aging. You know, what changes in us over, as we, over time as we age? Uh, in episode two, we spoke with Andrea Fruling about how we are always in transition. You know, it's just often that we don't notice changes because they're subtle. They happen day by day. In episode five, in our last episode, we spoke with David Marlowe about being a modern elder, thinking about ourselves in the context of the people and the community around us. And some questions like how much of our beliefs of the aging process are formed by media and society? What current stereotypes exist about aging that we might want to challenge? These are some of the questions that we love to engage our guests with today. I'll let Mark introduce who that is. Yeah, we're thrilled to welcome our guest today, David Wilson, to share his insights in a conversation. Just some background on David. He is a movement coach who's helping people move through their lives with confidence and discovering or rediscovering their movement potential. He's also a speaker who's challenging assumptions around aging through his anti-ageism advocacy. Um, in fact, he shares wonderful content regularly related to these topics on his Instagram account, Olds cool moves with over 130,000 followers and counting. Um, and I have a personal connection to David. I first met him back in 2018 at a movement studio called the Spirit Loft based out of Toronto, Canada, where David continues to train. So welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. And now I'm going to have to go back and check the other episodes of the podcast out because they sound really interesting. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of like, you know, threads that are going to be crossing throughout this conversation and throughout our season. So yeah, we're delighted to have you. And with each episode that we've had for this season around transitions, we've started with this question, David, and we'd love to pose it to you as well. What does the word transition mean to you? It's in some ways a meaningless word to me because it suggests that um, I'm moving between two different states. Uh, more and more, I resist the idea of being in a specific state at a specific time. And much like the first podcast you mentioned, I see myself as being continually in transition. So the idea of a transition suggests that maybe there is something that is not a transition. And I, I honestly do not believe that that's the case, that whether I recognize that I am transitioning from, you know, one thing that I might identify as a state to another, that is, that doesn't change the fact that I actually am in the process of doing it. I am never fully in one state, nor am I really, you know, fully not moving towards something else. I might not know what that is. I might not have awareness or even interest in what that is. But I'm always changing. I'm always involving because I cannot exist in isolation. So as the world in which I live changes, as I move through different environments, as I am in connection with other people, if I'm going to respond to the world that I'm in, I have to constantly be in transition. I like that. And and it and it kind of builds on what we were sharing earlier, this idea that you're always kind of in that process and it's not a start change. It's fluid. Um, where do you think that idea of fluidity comes from for you specifically, would you say? I, I think that it's been quite the, quite the evolution for me. I, I didn't certainly didn't used to be this way. I used to be quite, um, I guess, product oriented rather than process oriented. Um, I, I would describe myself as a perfectionist in recovery, uh, which is probably something that I will be recovering from for the rest of my life. And that's okay. That's a process too. Um, but I, I think that I realized that holding on very tightly to my identity was harming me. And that if I could let go of the way that I identified myself, and no matter what, I had way more freedom to be responsive to whatever situation I was in uh, and to actually question uh, some of the ideas around identity, around physical capacity, around age, for example. 
uh, but around many other things as well. So, for example, uh, you know, being being a man in this society, if I can let go of my identity a little bit, it, it opens up so many more possibilities, and in fact, um, stimulates what uh, the, the 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 great writer about education, Carol Dweck, would talk about uh, around a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. So embracing that idea of what does it mean to uh, be in constant growth. I'm working from the assumption that constant growth is good. So how do I foster the, the ways of thinking and being in, in the world that are going to help me uh, focus on growth rather than on the sense of an arrival mm -hmm. so so for me every arrival is a departure going back to the first question around what is a transition well every arrival is a departure so i love the point that you make around not sticking to one identity as the, the crux of who you are and maybe even the value that you bring to the world or the, the value you have of yourself um and yet in the world that we live in you know, we have titles at certain jobs. I'm a product marketer. Mark's a sales leader. We do certain things that define us, like we're a runner or I'm a CrossFitter. And we have a lot of attachment to that. Um, what what are the 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 challenges of of seeing things that way? And and how can we maybe uh evolve ourselves to be being less tied to identity? Mm-hmm. Well, let let's take um would you like me to use my example or would you like me to use one of your examples? I could do either. Let's I think put, maybe, yeah. yeah, try one of Peter or, or I's examples. That sounds Let's interesting. Let's put some skin in the game. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. Fun time. <laughs> uh, so, so Peter, you mentioned CrossFit. What does it mean to be a CrossFitter? Yeah. Uh, it means to be uh you know, an athlete, it means to be pushing myself. What does it mean to be an athlete? That I view myself as physically capable of doing challenging things. What does it mean to be physically capable? Um, being able to, to move, lift heavy weights, run a certain distance. Why does that matter? It matters because to me, that's a sign of uh, I'm, I'm fit. I'm able to, you know, do the things that I want to be able to do and then maybe in a way show other people I can do these things. Why does that matter? It matters because I, it matters what other people think of me and, and how. Why does that matter? Because we're, we're community based, we're, we're social creatures. Can you be community based and a social creature without being a CrossFitter? Oh, absolutely. There we go. So your ideas around being a CrossFitter didn't really take us very long to get to truly what the crux of the matter was, which is you being in community with somebody else. And now I can take that out in the other direction and ask myself, okay, well, I associated that with being a CrossFitter. Does that mean that everything that is not a CrossFitter cannot do those things? And then I realized very quickly, hmm, I can still be in community. I can still lead a very, very meaningful life and not be a CrossFitter. So maybe I don't have to hold on to that aspect of my identity too tightly. So maybe I can let it go. If I, if I discover that there are other things that are going to enable me to be in community or you know, achieve those deeper, more meaningful connection goals mm -hmm. um, a little bit better. So it's, 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 looking at the moon, which in this case would be the connection with people and the community, looking at the moon and making sure that I'm looking at the moon rather than the finger pointing toward the moon. Yeah, it's interesting. And and I've, you know, I've chatted with Peter about his experience with his studio. And, you know, I, I it's interesting how you got there, because I, I do think, not putting words in your mouth, but from what I gather, community is an important aspect of that experience. And so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see how, how that, that unfolds. And, and given that life will change, what if you, what if you can no longer be a CrossFitter? Mm -hmm. 
does does that mean that your life can no longer have meaning? Well, I guess the good news is based on the answers that you've just given. No, it doesn't. It means that you can continue to find meaning in your life for the rest of your life, no matter what happens, really. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think is very important is that we avoid both ageism and ableism in the way that we think about life. So I can lead a very meaningful life, Mm. regardless of ability. It's largely what's between my ears and how I'm thinking about it that is going to um, define the quality of my life. And, And having the freedom basically to let what is going to happen in my life happen and you know yes i'm not saying completely relinquish desire control all of those things of course i'm hoping that certain things will happen um for however much time i have remaining in my my life and yes i'm going to do certain things that are going to increase the likelihood of those things happening But what if they don't happen? I can't predict what's going to happen in my life. So how do I deal with that inherent unpredictability and the sense that no matter what I do, things are going to change? Here's a nice little experiment for you. Can you predict the next thought that you're going to have? Very hard. (laughs) No, you can't. You can't. Like, just how much control do I have over my life anyway, if I can't even predict my next thought? So let's let go of that idea that I have to be in control of those things. And instead, let's embrace the reality that things are going to change. So what is the best way for me to be um, not, not even managing, but just setting myself up so that those changes are not um, debilitating and soul destroying to me? How can I Going back to something I was saying earlier, how can I assume that growth is good? So working from that assumption that growth is Mm -hmm. good, how can I continue growing regardless of the changes that happen in my life? And I think that that's a really interesting question. Mm. Yeah. I had the front row seat of that experience, but just to turn it back to you, what was going through your mind, what's coming up for you as you think about some of the things David just shared? Well, I think initially there's resistance, right? Because like, I, I hang on to that identity and I don't want to think about that day when it's like, I can't do it anymore. Um, that being said, community is a big part of why I go. I go there because I want to do hard things with other people um, and, you know, and, and there's support there. So if that's a big reason why I go, um, then I can morph that into different ways and i have to start thinking about that way because one day i won't be able to do it just because of time like we'll start a family and we won't have time to go out and spend two hours at the gym uh lifestyles will change so the more i can be um prepared for that mentally and there's a, a phrase called uh um, phrase called anti-fragile uh and it's written like written by nasim taleb wrote the black swan and the idea is like, yeah, you know, an anti-fragile ident- like mentality is one that's not attached to one men- like uh, idea of yourself. And that came to mind if, as something to progress towards. Mm-hmm. I, I like to think of it as, as, as water, like water does have an identity, but, but it's not fixed mm-hmm. and it, it can change and it can flow over and through things. It can become one thing and another. It's still water. Mm-hmm. It's still water. So David, I think I know where you might go with this question, but I'm still curious to come back to kind of how Peter introed our conversation, which was this idea of the transition of aging. And we've heard you talk about it as a developmental process. Like, can you just explain what that that means a bit and how you see the transition of aging? Like I could just as easily ask that question of you, because here we are all are, we are aging. So we're alive, therefore we're aging. So if you're not aging, you're dead. So I think really what you're asking me is what is it like to grow old? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, for sure. I think that's another way of phrasing it. Absolutely. Okay. So a a couple of things about why I reframed it. First of all, I think that we need to, and Peter, you were talking about this earlier before we had our little thought experiment. Um which thank you for indulging me in that. I've, I I had fun doing it and I hope that you didn't find it too confrontational. Oh no, it's great. But I, but I thought it was really interesting. So let's talk about why I, I'm reframing this because I think that you might've been trying to be nice to me 
Mm. when you said, what is it like to be aging? Mm. Instead of using the word old. Mm. So let's talk for a moment about what old means. Old simply means that I have lived for a certain number of years. Just like young does not mean anything than I haven't lived for a certain number of years. And in, in fact, it's a very arbitrary measure. So one of the things that is, I think, really challenging for people who are growing older is that the word young has come to be associated with so many very positive things, being dynamic, being engaged, being interested, being sexy, being uh, robust, being uh, virile, being attractive, being strong. Why can't somebody old be those things? So young and old, it's we're, we're indulging ourselves in, in very binary thinking. And interestingly, the older we grow, the more different from each other we grow. So there are many, 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 many ways to grow old. There is no single way to grow old. So using the word old as a pejorative or negative term simply doesn't reflect what growing old actually is. So I don't know if, for example, you've heard of the U curve of happiness. Yeah. The U curve of, yeah. So the U curve of happiness suggests that we are at our happiest, both at the beginning and at the end of our lives. That in fact, it's folks your age that are, who would be typically the unhappy, happiest for a whole bunch of reasons, which we can go into if you want to. But the idea that, for example, old people are, you know, decrepit and necessarily frail, and we're all going to end up in um, an old folks home. First of all, everything that I just told you, scientifically, statistically, demographically, is inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And yet, we have the, this idea that, hmm, when I'm you know, 75 years old, this is what my life is going to be like. And we're, we're actually um, almost, almost frozen, paralyzed with fear at, at, the res at, 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 at that prospect. So think, for example, about ageism, which is just um, stereotyping prejudice and discrimination that is based on age. Think of the number of people I, I can't remember how old you are, Mark, but I encounter people in their 20s who are terrified of turning 30, people mm. in their 30s who are terrified of turning 40. It seems that the only age that it is acceptable to be in our culture is basically between, I would say, 18, maybe 19, and 30, maybe 31, 32. Well, how awful that is. Imagine that within our culture, it is truly only acceptable acceptable to be in that 10 to 12 year range. That outside of that, we're either too young or we are approaching too old. And of course that's flexible, but it's very interesting how many of us, when we enter the job, the job market, the workforce, we are considered to be too young or whatever to hold certain positions. That's ageism. And then we reach maybe a window of perhaps 10 years where we're right in the sweet spot, where we're considered to be the right age and have the right level of whatever to be eligible for just about everything if we're lucky enough to um, be in positions of privilege. And then we get old or older. And in, in certain professions, 42 is considered to be too old. And just try getting a job over 50. Most people. It's it's very, very difficult. Yeah, our, our, our last guest, actually, who is on, shared with us that he got to a certain age with his employer where he was considered surplus requirements, largely because of, quote unquote, age, um, not because of ability or, or skill. So these are real stories and they impact people in meaningful ways. And uh, it's it's really insightful and refreshing to hear how we maybe can challenge ourselves in some of these upheld societal beliefs. And, and we are yeah, we are all ageist. We are all ageist because we're we we grow up 
swimming in a sea of ageism. So, you know, think about the wicked witch image that you have in your head from being a little kid. I'll bet you it's an older woman, not a younger woman. Think about the images of, um, you know, dirt, dirty old men that you might have, or kind of, you know, the grumpy old man, or even the card game old maid. And the images that we have that are all over the place. Uh, Kim Kardashian, not that long ago, talking about uh, she would rather uh, eat poop than uh, to appear to be older. So we have this tremendous, tremendous fear of 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 aging, and, and of course we are going to internalize those things. Children as young as the age of three begin to discriminate against older people on the basis of age because of the messages that they are receiving. So this is this is very 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 interesting stuff. So let me tell you a little bit about my own story. So I practiced a martial art known as Aikido for quite a number of years, and. I was I was kind of you know moving up in in terms of capacity and I was about to test for my black belt and uh, I started getting this odd vibe at the at the dojo and it was strange because a, a lot of these people I would have at that time characterized as as good friends we'd go out for a beer on Thursday after practice and you know it was a it was a, a major source of social interaction and community to use your word peter and i started realizing that i was being excluded from certain things i was i was being excluded as 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 a practice partner of the sensei for example so not having as many opportunities to work with uh senior members of the dojo so that i could refine my own skills not being given as much time um and i, I began to suspect that there was something going on and I, I asked somebody that I was close to, and he said, well, well, David, it's because of your age. Wow. And he said, look, don't, don't tell anybody this, but I'm pretty sure it's because of your age, which suggested that he had been in on a conversation mm. that suggested that this was true. And in fact, when I talked to um, the the chief instructor, the, 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 the sensei of the dojo, he, he confirmed that, in fact, I was right. That you know, he would rather spend more time with uh, younger members of the dojo, and I. So I got a sense that I, I really didn't belong anymore. I didn't fit, and and now I'm absolutely terrified because I was a victim of my own internalized ageism, and I'm thinking, okay, well, like what's left for me? What what is left for me? So already I'm being shunted to the side. Um, so I'm, I, I better do something physically because now I'm going to become frail. Now that is of course incorrect. I want to point out that that's an incorrect, deeply, deeply wrong assumption. But that was the assumption that I had, that I'm going to become a fragile, little old man who is likely going to end up drooling in some hallway somewhere in an institution and boy, I'd better do something to hold on to whatever capacity that I have for as long as I can. And of course, that is a deeply ableist statement that I just said there, because I can live a very fulfilling life and meaningful life, regardless of either physical or mental capacity. But these are the assumptions that I was working with at the time. So this is when I fell into Spirit Loft. Right. I was just going to ask, um, sharing that story, I mean, first of all, it was very powerful. So thank you. And it, it sounds really like it was a difficult time. I'm just wondering, with the perspective you have now and everything you've accomplished and how you are speaking about anti-ageism, what context or what impact would you say that experience has had on your journey, if any, in, in, in shaping where you've gone since? Mm. It, it wasn't that experience. If it had stopped with that experience, I would have in even more deeply internalized all of the messages around what it means to be an older person and to be uh, growing older in our society. I would have internalized all of those ideas that, okay, as I grow older, I can no longer be 
engaged in the world, that I'm going to become more forgetful, that I am going to absolutely become fragile, uh, that, that I am going to um, end up in some kind of institution. So I, I, I would have probably, I would not have explored the world and begin, begin to uh, really question my assumptions unless what happened next happened. So what happened next was I had this old kettlebell that was sitting in my basement that I had actually bought before it was easy to buy a kettlebell. I bought this off the back of a truck. Wow. Yeah. In like, yeah, long before you could get kettlebell, long before kettlebells were all over the place, but I didn't use it. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm no longer going to be practicing Aikido, so I'd better do something. So I decided to learn how to swing this kettlebell around. And I landed at Spirit Loft, which is the studio that you mentioned in the introduction. And while this was only one of the many programs that they were offering, um, I, I quickly became interested in their other offerings as well and, and immediately noticed that I wasn't being... I wasn't being limited by other person, uh, other people's perceptions of who I was or what I could do in the same way that I had been at the dojo. So if I wanted to try something, I was given, I was given the support to try it. And I came to that studio with a whole bunch of ideas around what I could no longer do because of my age. So for example, here's here's a perfect example. I until I started going to Spirit Left, I had never in my life been able to do a chin up. Ever. Now I can. And in fact, within six months of being in that studio, I could do a chin up. Several of them, in fact. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Um and it it was a process where Time after time, I was provoked to see, oh, what I think about myself isn't actually true. So I have this assumption around what it means to be growing older or what my capacity is. And time after time, it was, oh, well, I was wrong about that. I can do that after all. And sometimes it would be, I'd see something and I, I would say, there's no way that I could do that. But then I'd try it, and immediately I could. Hmm. So sometimes it was a process, and sometimes it was me saying, I can't do that. But then with a little bit of encouragement, trying it and realizing that sometimes I could do it right away. And sometimes it would take me like two or three attempts, and it would immediately get better after the second or third attempt. And so what this created in me is now this questioning of the assumptions that I have about myself, but also about the world. So we'd love to touch on that um, because you mentioned it earlier around being process versus product oriented. And I can tell by the way that you describe things, you, you have a way of thinking about, yeah, I might not be here yet, but I can find a way to get there. How do you how do you go about thinking of okay I want to do this and and enjoying that process? Mm -hmm. Okay, well I think this gets to my three. Well, let's talk about my only rule of practice. And when I talk about practice, yes, it's my physical practice. But the more that I practice my physical practice, the more I realize that my physical practice is my life practice. So here we go. My only hard and fast rule. And, and this also helps me being a recovering perfectionist. My only hard and fast rule is practice today in a way that makes you, me, eager, excited, and ideally more capable of practicing tomorrow. And the three things that underpin that rule would be curiosity, compassion toward myself, and playfulness. So approaching almost anything with curiosity instead of with judgment or preconceptions. 
And of course, that's impossible, but I'm getting much better at recognizing when I have a preconception about something and being curious about whether that preconception is true. So, you know, a question that I ask myself a lot is, how do I know? And, and sometimes the minute I ask myself that question, I realize that I don't know. I might think I know, or I might think I know because somebody's told me, but how do I really know? And that's a very, very useful question to bring curiosity to everything. So, you know, I'll see something that uh, somebody else is doing with their body and, you know, I'll, I'll make certain assumptions about it, but I don't really know until I've tried it and finding a way into trying it and also finding a way to be kind to myself and realizing that almost anything that is worth learning, I'm not going to be able to do right away. So why on earth would I ever expect myself to be able to do something immediately? So finding ways to be compassionate and with myself and, and to begin to redefine success, not so much in what happens at the end, because I think you've heard me say now that there is no end. Every end is a new beginning, right? So how do I redefine success so that it's not based on any outcome, but instead that it is based on effort, based on the willingness to try in the first place, based on am I growing regardless of whether I can actually ever be able to do the thing? I just wanted to share a personal story with you, David. Um and how the words you're sharing are an inspiration for me because right now through getting to know my wife better, she grew up in the Dominican Republic, has lots of Latin inspired influences and wanting to connect more with her. I've gotten more interested in um, salsa dancing. Uh, I'm on a journey to try to learn a new language, learning uh, Spanish. And I am definitely, uh, how did you phrase it? I'm definitely a perfectionist in recovery. I'm not sure at which stage. I think you might be further along than I am. Um, but I I really struggled in those first courses, dancing, salsa dancing, because I was making a lot of mistakes. And it was hard for me. It was hard to shed that layer. And I just really admire what you're saying, redefining success with effort because um, it's helping me reframe my journey um, and being more open-minded instead of closed-minded and, and not being so hard on myself. Um, so yeah, I just, I just want to say uh, I'm, I'm hopeful other listeners can hear your words and, and feel the same inspiration. And yet I hear that and I'm thinking, yeah, effort's part of it, but I'm also learning how to redefine success by delight. Yes. So I think that, I think that effort at some level, at, at some point, if all I'm, all I'm defining success by is effort, then I'm actually not going to be able to um, adhere to my one and over our overarching goal, which is to want to become, want to be eager and excited and more capable of practicing tomorrow. If it's all defined by effort, then eventually I'm, I'm, I might stick with it for some time, but ultimately it's not going to be rewarding enough for me. So I do think that there does have to be pleasure there does have to be delight and to look for the pleasure, to look for the delight, to look for the sources of fun, at least sometimes so that we want to come back to the practice. You're learning to laugh at ourselves when we make a mistake with salsa dancing and having that great moment with a partner where, wow, I just stepped on your foot again. Wow, I'm so sorry. And, you know, you give the person a hug and it turns out to be a real moment of connection and delight and something that now you have a story. Hey, you remember like when we first learned how to do so, uh, salsa dancing and you were stepping on my feet every single time. And hey, do you remember that time we actually fell down on the dance floor? Those are the moments that we remember. Those are the moments that give our lives meaning, that bring us together as so fallible and so, so interesting because of our fallibility, because of what we can't do or that we struggle doing as much as for what we can do. So spot on. And, and uh, Peter, I want to throw to you in a minute. I just want to circle back on one other thing because related to self-work that can help me show up in those situations, it's also the environment and the teaching modality or the teacher. I wanted to go back to your experience at Spirit Loft because you talked about feeling accepted. Was there anything else you'd want to share about 
the learning environment that you're in or the teachers, uh, the owners of the studio that helped in that process. Um, I'm just curious in your thoughts about that. I, I think both in my own teaching and now I teach at Spirit Loft as well. So I think both in my own teaching and in the teaching that um, and I'm not even really sure I like the word teaching because teaching in it is is a word that is laden with um, past associations that are very hierarchical. Mm-hmm. What I was invited to do at Spirit Loft and what I invite everybody that I work with to do, and I try to invite people to do this through my Instagram account as well, is to create or co-create something that works for them. Recognizing that we all have different goals, that we are all very complex individuals, and that bring to uh, a studio or practice space, even if it's a practice space like the one you're seeing behind me, uh, a lot of um, background, so life experience, but also uh, social conditioning, cultural conditioning, um, economic status, all sorts of those things. So looking at the whole individual and just checking in with the individual, but the individual is um, achieving goals that are meaningful to them rather than goals that are meaningful to the trainer or whoever is providing the framework. I'm not saying that frameworks aren't useful. Frameworks can be very useful to help individuals deal with, especially when you start training, the almost overwhelm of information that's out there. So protocols can be very interesting and frameworks can be very interesting and useful. But I think that it is important to move beyond those frameworks to have meaningful discussions with people around what they want to achieve. And some of the reasons that people will come to uh, a, a training space or train or, or, or whatever would be largely social. Hmm. So understanding why somebody is coming and helping them to achieve those goals rather than goals that are set by somebody else and helping people to also deal with the fact that we show up differently every single day. So I might have this overarching thing that I want to achieve. But in, in fact, for me, mo- some of the most meaningful things that I have achieved would be being kind to myself in a moment when I really wasn't in some ways having a great time rather than being focused on, for example, getting the muscle up. So I think creating the conditions where we can delight and surprise ourselves by bringing awareness to what we're doing. So the more I practice, the more my practice is not a physical practice so much as a practice in awareness, awareness of my own body, what's going on with me physically, and maybe how I can tweak something to make it more challenging or less challenging, depending on what I'm experiencing in that moment, to make it more interesting or intriguing, to make it maybe make it more comfortable. So being able to adjust those things so that I'm giving myself the good grace to allow myself to come to whatever practice space as a human being who is not going to be the same every day and who is going to change. Practicing in this way enables me to imagine being able to practice until the hour of my death, Hmm. until the minute of my death. So I think this is a really good segue into another question that we had. Um, So you mentioned curiosity and compassion being, you know, two of the three rules uh, that you have and the overarching pursuit for delight in a way. Um, Comparison. We want to talk about comparison and how that can be a killer of this, where I give you you a personal example. Um, I was probably in the best shape of my life three years ago, right in the pandemic when I had hours to spend just to work out. Uh, but today I can't do the same things that I used to do. I can't do that muscle up that I could, I could have done or run as much as I could than I can today. And I get scared of trying to do the same thing because I'm comparing, comparing myself to that other version of me or, or others in the gym that, that do this better than I do. How do you think about comparison and, and how do you avoid the trap that comes with it? Well, I, I think that you've just done that to a degree by, by simply recognizing that it can be a trap. Now, I am not either or about comparison. Comparison is both. 
So for example, if I want to learn something, especially if I'm fairly fresh to it, it really helps me to be able to imagine my body doing something that somebody else can do in their body. So to use that comparison as a tool for learning. But I think that it's very important for me to recognize and to be vigilant with what's going on between my ears, that I am using my observation of that person and my comparison of what I'm doing with what that person is doing, again, with the idea of growth in mind. So it's going back to this idea of, am I growing from this? And of course, because we live in a society that really does value hierarchy and comparison, we are, we, are, we are going to have to constantly be vigilant about that. And even when we fall into uh, unuseful comparison, then we also have to give ourselves grace and compassion, right? Like grace and compassion aren't just for when we're doing uh, certain things. It's for when we are doing everything. Mm. Even when I fall into that self-critique, that really harsh, harsh, judgment is is that serving me in any way and in in most cases it isn't is it opening up ways for me to want to continue to practice nope mm. absolutely not absolutely not and i think it's very useful to put us in to put ourselves in situations where we are invited into that kind of frustration and into that kind of comparison. So now my task is not necessarily to do the thing, but to attempt to do the thing in a way that is going to enable me to grow. So this is what I mean by redefining success based on the context that I'm in. So what you're talking about is a self-limiting belief that is doesn't have to be that way. Well, if it doesn't have to be that way, then what can I do to change it? How can I how can I train for that in the same way that I would train to do something physical and be curious about how I can train and maybe you know switch up different strategies and you know be 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 delighted in that process of of growth and how I can be interested in that process of growth. Does that help at all? Oh, absolutely. And now I'm curious about the tactical side of things. So how, so it, it sounds like first recognize this is happening within you. And, and then from there, you know, try to, to, to shift that mindset to, to more about growing and learning and, and throwing yourself into that, you know, exciting challenge. Um, how, how do you then find those moments to shift that because I, I i think it's a little bit harder to to do than just like okay i'm ready to shift my mindset around it do you have do you have certain practices or ways that you're able to yeah let's th see this as an opportunity to be more curious and, and take it as a new you know learning experience yeah um i'm a great collector of other people's ideas i think i'm an artist at heart and all artists are great stealers so i'm going to steal something from a, a very good friend of mine um jeremy fine um f-e-i-n so jeremy is an, a fantastic coach and and very skilled at teaching skills acquisition and very interested as i am in the process of of of, of learning at almost a meta metacognitive level where we're looking at learning how to learn. Mm. So one of the frameworks that he talks about is how on in moments when we are experiencing frustration, we can change our goal. And he has a, a very simple framework that I like quite a lot, which is on any given day, or in any given moment within my practice, I can make the choice to perform. And, and, and there can be great delight in performance and in feeling really competent at something. And often when we are in that comparative mindset, we are in also a performance mindset. Mm -hmm. We do live in a competitive world. And we do live in a world where uh, our value to some degree 
is 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 judged by other people based on what we can and can't do in relation to other people. So of course we're going to be performative. And of course, sometimes we're going to want to perform, to really strut our stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. Why? After years and years of practice, would I not want to show off to myself every now and then? I don't think that that's unhealthy. But there are going to be some days when that's just not happening. When, you know, the however many kazoodle pluffs that I could do the other day, I, I just can't do that many kazoodle pluffs today. And, and I can't, I, I, I don't look as graceful when I do the mum squatch. So how can I do the kazoodle pluffs and the mum squatches to keep practicing? I can change what I'm trying to get out of it. Maybe on that particular day, I want to learn something more about the kazoodle pluff. What is something about this kazoodle pluff that I just haven't noticed before? Or something about my body in relationship to the kazoodle pluff that I haven't noticed before? So now I've redefined success once again. So it's no longer about the performance. It's about noticing. Am I noticing something new? Am I learning something out of this? Right? Same with the mum squatch. How can I maybe be just a little bit more graceful at this tiny part of the mum squatch? How can I maybe start the mum squatch differently? How could I switch it up so that I'm learning something new, either about the mum squatch or about me within the mum squatch? So he talks about his LPE framework, Jeremy does. Learn, perform, and the last one is enjoy, which goes back to the idea of having fun. Where is the opportunity for enjoyment in this? What part of the kazoodle pluff or the mum squatch do I enjoy doing? How can I bring more enjoyment into that? So in that moment where I realize I don't need to perform every day, but nor do I need to learn every day, and nor do I need to enjoy every day, life for most of us, if we are lucky, is pretty long. And something that I see in my students that really uh, forces them down is when they feel they need to get something right away. Why? Why? Why why can't why can't I enjoy? Why can't I get something out of performing whatever it is I'm I'm performing or doing whatever it is I'm doing in exactly the way that I'm doing it right now? Today, in this second, in this very millisecond. This is great. I'm I'm actually like trying to envision what the mom's watch and the Kazuto Puff movements look like. Um I, I'm going to have to make some up. I'm definitely going to have to make some up. <laughs> in your up. next uh, yeah, Instagram video, we'd love to see that. Yeah, And and I'm so glad that you touched on um, skill acquisition and performance and performing as something that is entirely, you know, welcome. And if that's what you want to do, that that's great. Um, it seems like that is a more common aspiration. Um, maybe you have a different view on that, but... I was curious on what you thought about like training or movement practice as it pertains to trying to push yourself in a way that might be a challenge. So thank you for, for sharing a bit of that. Oh, I challenge myself all the time. Yeah. But that's uh, something that works for me. That is something that works for me. And, and I think something that more and more I realize is truly different strokes for different folks. I, I did want to just get your advice or perspective. I know it's not a one size fits all answer, but surely we're going to have some listeners who are hearing these words today and might be at a different range of movement or a sedentary lifestyle and feel like, hey, you know, maybe movement is something I want to start prioritizing. Mm -hmm. Like any thoughts or, or words of wisdom on just like what it what what that can look like for people who are newer to this? Sure, sure. It might not be clear from what I've said that I haven't been a mover all my life. So I was the, the, the person who would pick up one activity and put it down the next day. So, well, I, to some degree, I kind of sort of recognized that I should be doing something physical. But even the way that I practiced Aikido wasn't particularly great. It wasn't particularly challenging. Um, I'd give myself a lot of... Um, grace to maybe not engage in it as fully as as perhaps if i were to start now 
ironically enough, uh, the experience would be different. But when I when I started this particular movement movement journey, and let me be clear about when in my life I started this particular movement journey, I started this particular movement journey in my mid fifties. So, interestingly, things just all began to change for me. So whereas before, I think I would have been, okay, I'm going to go to the gym every day for at least 45 minutes, and I'm going to train this, and I'm going to have this particular technique or this particular skill within X amount of time. I cut myself some slack. And I said, well, that hasn't worked for you so far. So why would you do that to yourself now? So I found my can't say no time which is the amount of, of, of time that I could commit to practice on a daily basis where I simply couldn't say no to that amount of time. And that's going to be different for everybody. For me, it happened to be 10 minutes. I could say no to 15 minutes. I could find an excuse or find a way around practicing if I set 15 minutes as a goal. But 10 minutes, couldn't say no to myself. I just had to do it. I, I could not create an excuse for myself. Some people, it might be five minutes. Some people, it might be one minute. Some people, it could be an hour. <laughs> it's going to depend you know, on, 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 on the person. But then the most important thing when you're starting out is simply to develop a habit of practice that you want to sustain for the rest of your life. This is a lifelong journey. And, and finding that habit of practice, building that habit of practice, Making the choice, the conscious choice that I'm going to show up for myself in this way every single day. And for me, it was 10 minutes. I'm going to show up for myself every single day for 10 minutes in this way. Frequently, it I, I was into it and I would spend much longer. But I made sure that I showed up for myself for 10. And 10 minutes is still my time. There, of course, are days when I'm really busy or, um, you know, I have lots of clients. And while I'm training the clients, I'm not training myself. It's still 10 minutes. And I've shown up for myself 10 minutes a day for, you know, years and years now without interruption. And it's building that habit of practice to carve out that time for myself and to have no possibility really apart from, you know, dreadful illness. Although even when I had COVID, I was still practicing 10 minutes a day in some way. I was practicing breathing techniques. I was, I was, you know, standing up and waving my arms up and down if I could for 10 minutes, just so that I would maintain that habit of practice. The other thing that I, I, I point out is just because your friend jogs doesn't mean you have to like jogging. And just because your friend likes CrossFit doesn't mean you have to like CrossFit. There's so many things out there that qualify as movement. And <laughs> There are so many rules, and most of the rules when you're starting out are, in all, in all honesty, kind of meaningless. So sets, reps, who cares? If I don't have a movement practice, who cares about sets and reps? Or who cares about whether I get in the recommended daily uh, number of minutes regarding cardiovascular uh, uh, activity? Who cares if I don't have a habit of practice already? Once I have a habit of practice, I think it, those things are very useful to understand volume, intensity, all, all of the sets, reps, all that stuff, number of you know daily recommended allowances, all of those things are really useful, but not right at the beginning. The most important thing right at the beginning is to find a way that you want to practice and find a way where you're not going to say no to that practice. And you see it as something you want to keep coming back to for the rest of your life. Yeah, I love that it just ties really nicely to, you know, how you said practice to get excited about tomorrow. It, it's, it's what's going to keep you coming back and then bringing that delight. So I uh, appreciate you tying that and making it practical for us. And how do we start on that, you know, movement journey, whatever that looks like. And find something you like to do. Oh, how often do we still labor under this idea of no pain, no gain? It's awful. Yeah, it doesn't have to be something that's not no. enjoyable, right? It can be, uh, I have a 
a Nintendo gaming system and they have like those dance games where you do rhythm based movement and that's movement, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, like, I like rolling around on the floor. I love rolling around on the floor. Mo- many, many people would rather stick pins in their eyes than roll around on the floor. Love it. So um, as we wrap this conversation up, uh, some uh, one question that we like to leave our guests with and love to hear your your thoughts on this is um, the the word Ikigai. Uh, it's the reason it means the reason for being the reason you wake up in the morning. Um, what does it mean to you? And, and why is it important in your life? This word Ikigai it might be the first time you're hearing this word. So take your take a moment. Yeah. It's a very interesting question because uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I never would have had this answer. I would say it's love. So when I, when I look at, at my three pillars of practice, like curiosity and compassion and playfulness, th- those are love. And, and this is really interesting because I never thought of it that way. This is the first time. So, hmm, yeah, I'm having a bit of a moment here. How can I love today? How can I how can I love what I'm doing? How can I love my world? How can I love myself? And and you know it, it probably sounds a bit trite, but that was the answer that came to me. And and I think th- that truly that's what I seek now. And 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 when I can't find love, at least can I find some some compassion? And can't that be a starting place? And what, why, how can I, I guess, how can I reduce suffering in the world? My, my own and, and also of others because we're interconnected. I, I cannot exist quite literally. I cannot exist by myself. So love takes me out there. If I love my life, I have to love other people. I have to love my world. Because I cannot exist independently of other people, and I cannot exist independently of my world. Yeah, the way you f- you phrase that uh, is also giving me a moment. Um, it's it's so interesting to hear different perspectives on that icky guy reason for being. And you know, from afar, I see many ways that you're tapping into your community and and sharing wonderful messages and positivity. And and just want to give you a second, because I know a lot of people will be listening to this wanting to follow some of the work that you're doing. Um, what ways can people see what you're up to, uh, follow along uh, and be a part of some of the things you've shared today? I mean, probably the best place remains uh, old school moves on Instagram, which is spelled a little bit differently than it sounds because I like the play on words. So it's not old school moves it's olds as in olds cool moves as in old is cool moves and there's a link tree in my profile that you know keeps people up to date with pretty much the stuff that i'm up to uh through that link tree you can always uh subscribe to my newsletter uh which gives people the first opportunity when something new is 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 coming up and around uh, I'm also uh, spearheading a, a Move for Tomorrow campaign, uh, which should be coming soon. So yeah, stay curious about that. It's definitely going to involve um, getting more images of a wider variety of people out there moving today in ways that they want to continue to be able to move tomorrow. And with maybe me offering a little bit of support on how others can uh, bring a few simple activities into their uh, daily lives in order to do that. I also just wanted to ask you quickly, David, uh, I know that you have uh, an online offering, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Move Well, Age Strong. There might be folks who are interested, but, you know, they, they're they not in person where, you, you know, you're based in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Seems like you have robust offerings online, uh, ways to connect to people that transcend geography. Did you want to just share for a moment sure. some of the work that you're doing? Absolutely. Well, the Move Well Age Strong program is a five-week revolving program with a different uh, focus to every five-week cycle. I think in the summer, because you know, I'm, I'm going away for a couple of weeks, we're going to run two four-week cycles, but um, for usually there are five-week cycles. So for example, right now I'm in the middle of a, a hip 
all things hippie, <laughs> hippie cycle. Um, and the reason that it's a program is it's nice to, to get to build over the five weeks. So the same people are showing up for five weeks. And so there can be uh, uh, scaffolding and progression far more than in drop-in classes. I, I recently realized, though, that that, that program alone um, was not necessarily meeting all people where they are and where they would like to start. So uh, just recently, I've started uh, through Old School Moves, the Instagram uh, that I just mentioned, um, giving uh, an opportunity to attend a workshop with me pretty much once a month. And it would be like a 75-minute workshop, and then I'll stick around for however many questions you want to ask me afterwards. So uh, those are two online opportunities that uh, spring to mind to uh, to be um, moving with me. I don't even really like the word working with me, but moving with me and exploring with me and being inquisitive and inquiring and delighting and playful and all of those things. Tapping into curiosity. So, right? There you go. There you go. Throwing in a mom squash or two along the way. Yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for being with us today. This felt like a journey from start to finish. We went, we covered quite a few different topics, and uh, I think Mark and I are both inspired and and much more educated now on on uh, topics like ageism and you know curiosity and growth. And and so we really appreciate your time. Um, but yes, thank you again, and uh, take good care, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Thank you. Right on. Thank you so much for listening. Special thank you to Hugh for the theme music. You can check them out at herehue.bandcamp.com. If you're interested in learning more about the Ikigai Project, you can check out the blog at ikigai.blog. And if you found this content useful, please subscribe or tell a friend or family member about this podcast. I'll see you next week for another episode of the Ikigai Project. Take good care for now, everyone.